This morning, I hope you're going to stay with me because we're going to go through a lot of narrative, but I think there's a really profound, at the heart of these narratives, a really profound truth that I think that applies directly to where we are. We're, uh, Pastor Nathan read from 2 Kings. We're actually going to close out the book of 1 Kings, so you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 22. That's where we'll start my plan, is to go all the way through the first chapter of 2 Kings. And it's because I wanted to keep both of these narratives close together because I think they're both doing something similar with a historian sort of recording these events, recording what happened to these two different kings, and showing us exactly what can happen when we have a misplaced faith, or as the word I hope to sort of unpack this morning, having a compromised faith. And I think that's what happens here. And at the end of 1 Kings 22, we will see the story of Jehoshaphat. And then in the first chapter of 2 Kings, we have sort of the demise of King Ahaziah, the infamous son of the even more infamous King Ahab. Now, normally you might feel a little bit uncomfortable this morning because I'm doing something weird and doing a sermon between two books of the Bible. And we like to keep things separate uh, just so you know, the books of the these two books originally were one book, so we can just alleviate mind there. Verse numbers aren't inspired either, so uh, it was just all one flowing text. <laughs> uh, back in the early days of the scriptures, they didn't say turn to First Kings twenty two. They would have to pull out the the scroll and find it uh, with a meticulous care and whatnot. All that to say, we can feel comfortable slamming these together because uh, there's a lot of truth that's going on in these two particular texts that I think applies directly to where we are here this morning in 2021. And it's going to be interesting because King Jehoshaphat is largely regarded and recognized as one of the few, one of the very few good kings of Judah. And then Ahaziah, of course, is the son. He's the offspring of Jezebel and Ahab. He doesn't have much going for him. (laughs) And it might seem weird at first to call them very similar, two sides of the same coin, so to speak. But that's exactly what I think that they are. They're two uh, kings that might appear different, but they actually show us, I think, my two points this morning, uh, both the subtlety and the severity of compromise. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So you're in 1 Kings 22. The first section this morning that I want to go through is point number one, the subtlety of compromised dependence. The subtlety of compromised dependence. We have Jehoshaphat. Look at verse 41. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Now, uh, It's interesting because Jehoshaphat was actually mentioned, you may not remember this, all the way back in chapter 15. He's just mentioned in passing in a couple verses as we went through the story of King Asa. At the very tail end of that, Jehoshaphat's name is mentioned just kind of saying he took over for his dad. And that he's not mentioned again, Jehoshaphat isn't, until chapter 22. And as we looked at last week, Jehoshaphat isn't given sort of the best sort of... Uh, reputation. He's not colored in the best way in chapter 22. And actually, he's kind of seen to be somewhat gullible. He kind of just goes along with everything that Ahab says throughout that entire narrative. If you remember, uh, since we haven't heard from him in a while, we suddenly find Jehoshaphat and Ahab in allegiance with one another. 
And they're not just in allegiance with one another, as 1 Kings 22 opens. We actually find that they're making plans for war with each other as they're going to go to war with Syria. And we find him in verse 4. What does he do? He pledges manpower and horsepower to Ahab's cause almost without reservation. Notice what he says. I am as thou art, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. Here, have whatever my resources are, you can have them. Which seems kind of ill-advised. And then further on in the chapter, as we, I'm not going to re-preach 20, chapter 22, but just getting you into it, further along in that narrative, we find that even after Micaiah gave that very, very strong prophecy against this engagement, against this idea of going into battle, even still, he and Ahab go along with it. They go along with their battle plans. Look at verse 29. It says, so the king of Israel, that's Ahab, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead where they would make war. Even after the prophecy of Micaiah. And then it, I think in one of the most stark examples of Jehoshaphat's sort of gullibility, if you will. He goes along with this ruse that Ahab comes up with. Remember, if you remember from last week, Ahab comes up with this idea that, okay, Jehoshaphat, you go out into battle in your full kingly garb. You're shining bright, I imagine just this shining bright armor with this royal regalia. And he's dressed out to the nines. You do that, Jehoshaphat. And what does Ahab do? He says, I'm going to hide myself, disguise myself as just a regular Joe amongst the ranks. So that way, you can lead the charge and you can get the glory. But actually, I think Ahab's idea, his scheme, was to get Jehoshaphat sort of out of the way so he could just slip away unnoticed. (laughs) And he goes along with it. Verse 30, And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and enter into battle, and put, but put thou on thy, thy robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. And we see that's exactly what happens. Jehoshaphat leads this charge like, like a guy dressed out to the nines. And he ends up getting hunted down by Ben-Hadad's men. And he actually, as he shrieks for mercy, it says in verse 32, And it came to pass when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, that they said, Surely is the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out, which is literally a word that means he shrieks for mercy and help from these pursuers. All of that to say, Jehoshaphat isn't given the strongest sort of reputation in this narrative. And then he closes, the historian does, with these verses in verse 41 down through verse 50 in a very strange sort of closing story. These verses, which we'll go through in a moment, read almost like just bullet points of historical details. Jehoshaphat did this, then he did that, then he did this, and then he passes away. (laughs) It's very interesting how he succinctly describes this reign of Jehoshaphat, king over Judah. And it's important, you might want to turn there uh, um, to 2 Chronicles 17. Because 2 Chronicles 17 through about chapter 20 gives the, uh, another sort of version of the same events. And it's really interesting to note that having uh, just this particular passage, 1 Kings 22, we might... Assume that Jehoshaphat wasn't a very good king. But in fact, what we find if we compare both narratives, he's sort of an okay king. (laughs) In chapter 22, verse 43, we notice that it says that he walked in all the ways of Asa, his father. He turned not aside from it, doing that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. 
And then in verse 46, notice it says, And the remnant of the Sodomites, which remained in the days of his father, he took out of the land. So he brings about a great revival, a great reform. And in fact, the chronicler in 2 Chronicles 17 actually mentions that he follows in all the ways of David. He's making mention of the fact that, yes, Jehoshaphat is doing good by the people and for the people of Judah. He's bringing about reform. He's getting rid of those old sodomies and and terrible liturgies of paganism that had so riddled the land by his forebears. And he makes Yahweh central to his monarchy. Actually, go to 2 Chronicles 17. And then look at verse 9. Notice what he does. And actually, he talks about he it talks about his sort of labor reform, education reform, and, and how it just leads to political prominence in his day. Notice Second Chronicles seventeen nine and it says, and they taught in Judah and had the book of the law of the Lord with them and went about throughout all the cities of Judah and taught the people. He's going around all of Judah, making sure everyone knows that this. Kingdom is going to be centered and revolved around Yahweh. And it brings about a season of blessing. Those verses after that in 2 Chronicles 17 kind of note how nations surrounding them go to Judah to pay homage to him, recognizing his power. And yet even at the same time, Jehoshaphat's kingdom was not without controversy or iniquity. If you go back to 1 Kings 22... Notice in 43, at the end of that verse, he's doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord, but it says, Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. For the people offered and burned incense in the high places. He's, his, this great awakening, so to speak, was not quite as total, was not quite as great and as sweeping as perhaps we might first think. Yes, he's bringing Yahweh into all of the places that he can, but yet there still remains places for pagan worship to be conducted. And in fact, in 2 Chronicles 20, we we see that this has gained a foothold on the people of Judah. Which I think is what, what allows for Jehoshaphat to go into such quick agreement with Ahab. It it seems kind of strange for the king of Judah to be shaking hands with the king of Israel. Just a couple of years ago, in this particular history, we remember they were at war with one another. They were fighting with each other. And now all of a sudden, the kings of both are shaking hands. (laughs) I think it's all to do with this doctrinal sort uh, sort of demise that happens within Jehoshaphat. He lets a little bit stay. He compromises just a little bit, allowing these high places to remain. Which I think leads to, eventually leading to him uh, aligning himself with Ahab, one of the most sacrilegious kings of all the kings of Israel. But then we get to this really interesting story, because the compromise, the subtlety of compromise that appears in Jehoshaphat's reign is evidenced in this little note in verse 47. Notice what the historian records. There was then no king in Edom. A deputy was king. Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold. But they went not. For the ships were broken at Azan-Geber. 
And he said to Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, unto Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with thy servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat would not. Well, what's going on here? Well, go with me to Second Chronicles chapter 20. Because these record the same events, but from a, they provide a little bit more detail and background. They flesh out this story just a tad. And I know we're jumping to a lot of places, but I hope you'll stick with me for a moment. So 2 Chronicles 20, look at verse 35. The chronicler says, And after this did Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, join himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who did very wickedly. And he joined himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish. And they made the ships at Ezongaber. And Eliezer, the son of Dodava of Meresha, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because thou hast joined thyself with Ahaziah, the Lord hath broken thy works. And the ships were broken, that they were not able to go to Tarshish. <laughs> Interesting turn of events as we find out what really happened with this tragedy at this port city. So you see, similar to that very ill-advised, very unwise alliance that he makes with Ahab that leads to a war that almost leads to Jehoshaphat getting killed on the battlefield. Here again, he's shaking hands with Ahaziah, as the historian says, who did very wickedly. He's not a good guy. He's not a good king. He comes from the lineage of Ahab and Jezebel. So it's very likely that he was not a good lot. And they intended, their mission was to sort of capitalize off of Edom. Edom was a southern district of Judah on the fringes of the Red Sea. And because they had no king, because Edom didn't really have a strong ruler, it was a district that was very easily uh, exploited for his own good. And that's what he intends to do. They arrange for this fleet of ships to be constructed at Izan Geber, a port city there. And as it says, their plans were literally sunk. As the historian says, the ships were there, but they went not. They were literally ruptured where they were floating in dock. They never even made it out of port. They sunk. They were destroyed. And this tragedy, as the chronicler shows us, is not accident. It's not happenstance. God did this. You compromised in your dependence upon Yahweh alone. And therefore he is sinking your plans. It was divine authority at work. Thwarting these best laid plans of mice and men so to speak. That Jehoshaphat had made. So you see however noteworthy Jehoshaphat's kingdom was. However commendable some of the things that he did, I think a lot of his shortcomings spelled his own undoing. He wasn't dependent upon Yahweh alone. In fact, his, his reign was not entrusted to Yahweh's watch care, at least not totally. Rather, he was dependent upon his own wisdom. Such is why he was making agreements and collaborating with this king and that king. Evil kings that he should have stayed away with. But he had compromised in one area. So it wasn't that big of a deal in these other ones. And I think what Jehoshaphat shows us. Is that it's incredibly foolish to place our trust in princes. We know that. Psalm 118 verse 9. You know what it says? Listen to these words of the psalmist. Psalm 118, actually verse 8, it says, It is better to trust in the Lord 
than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Jehoshaphat is good. He's doing lots of good things. And yet, he had a dependence that was compromised. He had an attention that was not fully given over to Yahweh. Therefore, for however much good and benefit he brought on the people of Judah, Judah's hope was for a true and a better king. One who wouldn't compromise in their obedience like Jehoshaphat did. That's what Judah needed. A true and a better king who would obey uncompromisingly. Yes, even if that meant his own death. Again, if you don't get the hint, that's who Jesus is. Was it say in Philippians 2.8? That he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Uncompromising obedience is manifest in the true king of kings, Christ alone. This subtlety of compromised dependence wheedles its way into the heart of this monarch and ends up spelling his undoing. His plans are sunk and he is somewhat forgotten as a lost king. Somewhat good, somewhat bad. He was compromised. But that leads me to the second narrative that I want to get to in 2 Kings chapter 1. Because we have the the subtlety of compromise dependence. But notice here in this chapter what we're going to see is the severity of compromised devotion. The severity of compromised devotion. This tells the story of King Ahaziah. As I've already said, he doesn't have a good lineage. (laughs) We, I kind of feel like he is one who was sort of behind the eight ball, if, if you catch that phrase. He's sort of one that didn't have much going for him. He was the son of Ahab and Jezebel, and his entire reign was what we could call a catalog of disaster. Notice uh, verse, actually 51 of chapter 22 of 1 Kings, where the historian says, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And reigned two years over Israel. Very short reign. He only reigned for two years. And it says that, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And walked in the way of his father, in the way of his mother, in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. For he served Baal and worshipped and provoked to anger the Lord God of Israel, according to all that his father had done. Not a good biography. He's an evil king who did evil. He had evil parents. And he's walking in all of their ways. Doing exactly what he was sort of brought up to do. Walk in the evil ways of his parents. And you see here as he's walking along with what exactly they did. He continues in that worship and that reverence for Baal. Those words there in verse 53 ought to strike us. That he served Baal and worshipped him. And this is what provoked anger in Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. We see that's what happens in chapter 1 of 2 Kings. Which provides a little bit more backstory on this really brief account of Ahaziah's reign. Because things don't really work out for him. 
In the first verse, we notice that there's a rebellion going on. There's revolt. The people of Moab are rebelling against the people of Israel. And as we comes to find out in verse 2, he suffers a serious injury after falling out of a window in his palace. And this injury revolt results in what is likely an infection that is overtaking his whole body. And it's so severe, as we note, that he actually calls for some messengers to go to uh, Ekron and inquire of the god there, Beelzebub. He wants to see if he's going to make it. He wants to see what the prognosis is. I am in a bad state. And what is his first thought? To go to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Which is an important thing to note. And as he sends his men off, they're greeted in the way by an unlikely man, a man that we might have perhaps forgotten about, but it's Elijah, that old strong mouthed prophet of Yahweh. He comes and greets these men in the middle of the road, and he has these very strong words for them. Notice verse 3. He says, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that you go to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. And Elijah departed. He appears in the middle of the road, gives them a strong word, a condemning sort of question. Why are you going to Ekron? Why are you going outside of the, of the borders of Israel to inquire of a God in your king's hour of need? Has Yahweh left? That's literally his question to these men. Has Yahweh gone away that you need some other counsel? And he says because of this, because of, yes, your compromised devotion and your bowing to this lesser God, your king is never going to leave his bed. That bed where he's recovering is actually his deathbed. These men are paralyzed in the way, and so they go back to Samaria. Notice verse 5. The messengers, they turned back. They never go to Ekron. They never make it to where they were supposed to go. And it says, and when the messengers turned back unto him, that is King Ahaziah, he said unto them, why are ye now turned back? Why didn't you do what I told you to do? <laughs> so they're trying to explain themselves. You see, there was this guy. <laughs> and they said unto him, there was a came up a man to meet us. And said unto us, Go, turn again unto the king that sent you, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel, that thou sendest to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. So they relay this scene, and, and they apparently don't recognize Elijah. Isn't that fascinating? Because notice, and he said unto them, What manner of man was he which came to meet you, and told you these words? Verse 8, and they answered, he was a hairy man and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. They're describing him. They're trying to uh, describe this mystery man, this encounter who appears like a phantom in the street, delivers this word and disappears. And we don't know who he is, but Ahaziah knows it is Elijah the Tishbite. I imagine that when he realizes who this is, a shockwave went through his bones. That he was made to be chilled, yes, not just by the infection, but by the realization that that old prophet who had so made such a havoc of his mom and dad's kingdom had returned again. <laughs> that prophet Elijah who had spoke such strong and fierce words. 
to Ahab and Jezebel had returned to give much the same to their son, Ahaziah. But as we see, he's, he's not having any of it. Look at verse 9. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50, with his 50. And he went up to him. So he dispatches the squadron of men to seize the prophet. Now we don't perhaps know exactly what he intended to do. Whether he wanted Elijah to recant this prophecy and change it. And make it something that different so it sounded better in the king's ears. Or whether he was just going to capture Elijah and then, and then try to execute him. I don't know. But regardless the intent is not a welcoming committee. He's not trying to welcome him back into the kingdom. So he sends this captain with 50 men behind him to go seize Elijah. And behold, it says, he, Elijah, sat on the top of a hill. And he spake unto them. The captain speaks out, thou man of God, the king hath said, come down. And then Elijah replies with a very interesting reply. Notice verse 10. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee in thy 50. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him in and his 50. Not a nice way perhaps to start a conversation. <laughs> they're coming up to seize him and then all of a sudden they're turned to ash. <laughs> Ahaziah, though, is really determined to get this guy. So in verse 11, he rounds up another captain with another 50 men to go up to this hill and do the same thing. And the results are no different. The orders are given, come down, the king has said so. And then all of these men are reduced to nothing but ashes by a divine inferno again a second time. Maybe the third time's the charm. <laughs> Look at verse 13. And he sent again a captain. Captain number three of the third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of the 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah. And besought him and said to him, O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these 50 thy servants be precious in thy sight. Behold, there came down fire from heaven and burnt up the two captains of the four and fifties with their fifties. Therefore, let my life now be precious in thy sight. You can imagine this king is, or this captain is walking on eggshells as he approaches this prophet. He's surrounded by carbon bodies and he realizes, I need to really appeal myself to this guy. Can't say anything wrong. <laughs> He basically begs for his men to find mercy. Come on, just let me do my job. Just come down the mountain and talk to my king. <laughs> and essentially, that's what occurs. Verse 15, and the angel of the Lord said unto Elijah, go down with him. Be not afraid of him. And he rose and went down with him unto the king. So Elijah goes down the mountain. He goes down and greets Ahaziah and he gives exactly the same prophecy as before. And he said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, for as much as thou hast sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it not because there is God, no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore thou shalt not come down off that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. And that's exactly what happened. So he died according to the word of the Lord which Elijah had spoken. 
Now the rest of the Acts, verse 18, of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written the book of, Israel, of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? He passes off the scene, out of sight, out of mind, out of history, Ahaziah does. It's lots to unpack here. <laughs> lots to go into in this particular passage with Elijah sitting on the top of the mountain, calling down fire from heaven and incinerating 102 men. Might make you a little uncomfortable. Weren't those guys doing their jobs? Did they deserve to be uh, incinerated like that? Did they deserve to get consumed like that? There's a little bit of uh, sort of maybe perhaps troubling ethics that appears in this particular chapter. But I think not if you just carefully pay attention to the passage. Especially verse 15 where the angel comes to Elijah's side. And he allays his fears there and says you can go down. Be not afraid of them. Which goes along with what we said earlier. That these 50 men, these captain with their 50s, weren't there to give niceties to Elijah. They weren't there to make friends. They weren't there to have tea and crumpets. They were there to take him to prison and perhaps execute him. They were there on a mission to do a malevolent bidding of their king. And obviously this fire that comes down... And these first two go-arounds is a divine fire of protection over God's man. God takes initiative, consuming his prophet's enemies. But why was such a, a, a fire necessary? Why was such a demonstration of this type of force, of this type of theatrics necessary? Well, I think it goes back to verse 3. And the question that's repeated throughout this narrative. Remember what Elijah says to the messengers. Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that you go to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? You see, I think this question is the question which colors this entire narrative. Because you see, this is exactly what has been going on. Ahaziah, and yes, those before him, but he is now maintaining this idea that Yahweh can be replaced. And not just replaced, he can be forgotten about. He can be deemed irrelevant. We saw that with King Ahab in his heyday, and all of the iniquity and the idolatry that he brought into Israel. He was making the, the Yahweh and the religion of Yahweh somewhat of an irrelevant thing, a religion of old hats. And yet here again we have Ahaziah continuing the same thing. Thinking that he can replace Yahweh. Replace the religion of the God that had delivered these people. Delivered them, safeguarded them, given them dominion. And yet here is, is, is what we see going on. Is This is something that God doesn't take lightly. God has... Little patience for the idea that he's replaceable. That he's interchangeable. That if we don't like things about him. That if we don't care for things that he does. We can just go and serve someone else. That's what is so indicting about verse 53 of the previous chapter. Where it says that Ahaziah was serving and worshiping Baal. You see God is 
uncompromising when it comes to his name and his person and his glory. Such is why the first commandment says it so. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He's serious about those words. He's serious about what they mean. He's serious about what they entail and their significance for us. Having no other gods means exactly that. Not just little idols that we put on shelves, but gods that we bound down to in our daily lives. And you see here, this whole entire nation of Israel had bowed down to other gods. God was serious. Serious when he said there is no other gods except me. And so he proves it with the most demonstrable show he can. It's almost a repeat of the events of 1 Kings 18. If you remember, there was that contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Who could light these altars on fire? And whoever's God answers the prayer of the prophets and consumes these altars, let him be God. The identity of the one true God. And we could say the veracity, the truth of the one true God was hanging in the balance in that scene. And so it is here with Ahaziah going to some other deity for relief, for comfort in his hour of need. He's almost taunting God. He's taunting the God of all things with the idea that he is insufficient for what I need. So Ahaziah, when he made that decision, go to Beelzebub, the the Lord of the flies is what that literally translates to. Go to him and inquire for my needs. He had frustrated Yahweh for the last time. Time for more fireworks. You see, just like at Carmel, on this hill, this unnamed hill where Elijah is sitting and communing with God, a fire rained down from heaven to demonstrably prove who the real God was. It wasn't that Lord of the Flies, that Maggoty Beelzebub. It was Yahweh, the true and holy God, as we sung about this morning. It is this king who rules and reigns over all things, all places, all times. He is forever the one true God. And yeah, you you may not like him, but he is still the God. Yes, even of your situation. And this is exactly, I think, what this passage brings to bear. Just the utter foolishness that we often exhibit when we concede our faith to something other than Yahweh. To something other than God. I'll confess my my own compromise. That often we find ourselves devoted to something less than God. We find ourselves dependent on something other than who God is. And any, any God replacement that we put into that equation is always a lesser version of what who and what God is. A compromised devotion to God leaves us only with nothing but the Lord of the flies to rely on. It leaves us with a surrogate God that is entirely inferior to this God of the word, Yahweh alone. Only he is worth our devotion and worth our dependence 
And I wonder, and I ask myself, what am I devoting myself to? What am I depending on? Where has my dependence and my devotion been compromised? Is there subtle ways, subtle avenues that where my attention has been swindled and taken away from the one true God? It's a short trip from doing that to compromising your entire devotion. These two kings are then, uh, we can hold them up as parables. Parables that speak to us of, the, of the, the, the downfall and the consequences of compromise. Because you see, the things that occur in our life. The suffering, the, the trials, the dilemmas, the, the uncomfortable situations, the inconvenient seasons, the burdens that weigh us down. They're not meant to bring us to the point where we're relying on some other God. They're meant for us to throw ourselves at the feet of Yahweh alone. Unlike Ahaziah, when we are in the midst of a season of tragedy, our first resort ought not to be going to some God of the flies, but to be going to the God of all things. And you see, this is the most staggering truth of all of this uh, scripture. Because the glad tidings that are revealed in this book, they announce one particular announcement that still sends shockwaves through me. Which is this, is that this God that we are called to fear... This holy God that makes darkness tremble. This holy God before whom every king and nation is ought to bow. Is none other than this God, this one who calls us to repent and believe and find rest in his nail scarred embrace. That's the amazing truth about this God. Is that yes, he is uncompromising in his devotion to his own holiness. And he calls us to be the same. But he also loves you and me uncompromisingly. You see, what I love about this passage that shows us one particular thing. Is that Yahweh, God, is a God of his word. His word of judgment is uncompromising. But so too is his word of pardon. Just as uncompromising as his word of judgment is. Which brings, yes, devastation on those who resist him and reject him and seek to replace him. So too is his word of pardon. Just as unflinching and unfailing and uncompromising for those who, yes, repent and believe in his name. And I think this is the... The truth of this passage which speaks to me greatly and has spoken to me for countless months. Is that Yahweh is a God of his word. Notice verse 17 of 2 Kings 1 where it says, These things happened according to the word of the Lord. That's what undergirds our moment. That's what undergirds our history. That is the sobering truth that yes it's revealed in very harsh ways. Through the judgment that comes upon Jehoshaphat and Ahaziah. But it's revealed in very thrilling ways. When we realize that this God of the word. This God who does things according to his word. Is the same one who came to us. To yes take our place as sinners and die for us. 
See, we don't have to question the truth of God when he says that he has come to take away the sins of the world. As impossible as that might seem, as uncanny as that might appear, this is the truth of God's word. And because he is a God who does all things according to his word, we can take him at his word. And when he says that he has swallowed up our sin and given us his victory. And when he says that he will remember our sins no more. That he has cast them behind his back. That we can trust in this heavenly father. This heavenly father who redeems, who saves, who forgives uncompromisingly. He doesn't back down from the words that he declares. Yes, Words of judgment. And yes, words of pardon. He doesn't compromise on what he says. He is a God of truth. A God of holiness. And we ought to settle for nothing less. Let us bow our heads and pray.